Welcome to Media Futures Spotlights, a series exploring the great research coming out of the Media Futures Hub at UNSW Sydney. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, your host for today, and I'm speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Bidjigal and Gadigal people in what is now called Sydney, Australia. Here on the pod, we acknowledge and pay our respects to elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and First Nations lives and justice. My guest today is Kevin Witzenberger, a PhD researcher at the Media Futures Hub, working on the impacts of automated technologies on education. Now, you might be thinking iPads and virtual classrooms, but the transformations underway are much bigger and much more worrying than that. Kevin has published a bunch of new research, but today we're going to focus on a new paper about preemptive ed tech. Kevin Witzenberger, welcome to the Media Futures podcast. Hey, thanks, Michael. What a nice introduction. Uh, so, Kevin, I want to get to this paper of yours soon, but first, can you tell me about your research in general? What are you focused on? What are your main concerns? I suppose my research is mainly concerned with automated technology in kind of like the education governments area. So anything really that has to do with kind of automated decision making, right? So, and um, when I do say governance, I really mean anything from kind of like that, these like small decisions in like based in a classroom that are sometimes automated or more and more automated around, you know, singling particular students out for like, you know, concerning reading um, comprehensions or something like this towards like really like national policy decisions that are like somehow made with like different like machine learning models without much human intervention or kind of like broader policy strategies that are really worked out through software and other applications. It's a fascinating area, and I think one that doesn't get the attention it deserves in the public debate about education. Um, you know, as I said in the intro, so much of the concern is often about like, well, what are the screens that, that students have in the classroom, or um, how are students learning online now? But you're talking about something much deeper than that, something more about the decisions that are made about students and about what learning looks like. So what brought you to this topic, and what's your story as a researcher? Why this? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So I actually, you know, when you when you do something and you don't really know why, and it all seems like a patchwork, but now and I'm looking back, it all kind of makes sense. So I started out as a teacher, like to study as a teacher, but I very quickly actually more veered into media and information studies, which became more and more particularly focused on, you know, software and things I was really, really interested in. And so, you know, I kind of like forgot about all this like teaching stuff I used to do. And I got into the research area. I took a really big interest in aud like audience studies and reception theory. And I was reading about machine learning algorithms. And I realized that, you know, the way that people like personally understand things or build their imagination about algorithms or like not algorithms, but just the way they interact, how that all takes part of like actually like within a machine learning algorithm. So that's how I got into this kind of space of looking more in like these very like technological developments from, you know, all sorts of different perspectives that really includes kind of like now it's a student perspective, but at the time it was really like all about the user perspective and how the user's imagination can shape like algorithms. Yeah. And then, yeah, pretty quickly I've realized that while this kind of whole critical algorithm studies about what it was called in 2015, while that was really kind of like gaining so much attention and like attraction. And it, I kind of realized that no one is really looking into this 
into the same algorithm, the same ways of operating. Like they also be used in education, but they're just not as visible as like, you know, on as they are on Facebook. But much of the platforms that we have on that we use in education are very similar. Like, you know, you use like the Google APIs for the Google Classroom. And so it's very often even the same companies. And um, yeah, so this is how I got into this. So that's actually the perfect lead into the next thing I wanted to ask you, which was to help to sort of set the scene for us a little bit about education technology. So what does the ed tech landscape look like? You've mentioned Google, but who are the big players and what kinds of services and technologies are they selling? Yeah, so that's pretty interesting, right? Because it's like, it's such a, an ill-defined problem that we don't really know. So just like to historically, like, you know, edtech, anything that's like kind of education technology is something to learn. So, and that's obviously kind of very similar to the idea of artificial intelligence as well, because once you get to something, you're kind of like, nah, that's not really like artificial intelligence because artificial intelligence has also has to do this, right? And edtech is like similar, right? Like a different, like particular pens, you know, like could be described as edtech, not in our current circumstances. And the same as if, like, if you look into the 60s and you go and look at, you know, like the works of like Skinner with his like teaching machines and stuff, that was also definitely edtech, but we wouldn't really describe it as such anymore. Today, we have all sorts of different things that they can be applications, they can be apps, they can be platforms, but edtech can also be like, you know, physical and palpable things. So anything that really like goes into the classroom is supposed to like help learners to, you know, learn things. I don't know, to give you some concrete, like really concrete examples, it can be anything from like smart whiteboards to some kind of Siri applications for education, like Alexa is actually like very popular. There's a lot of stuff. So the big platforms that we see outside the education sphere, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and so on, are they also the big players in, ed in education or there, are there some companies that are you know, distinct to education? Part of my research has been that I actually went down to a lot of these um, edtech trade shows, right? They're like trade shows where edtech is being sold to like schools and universities and, and nations and anything. And um, there's like levels right, to this. There's like on the top end, you have, as you already mentioned, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, right? They're the ones who are really doing like the nitty gritty stuff of developing like not just the software, but also like the APIs, right? That other companies can rent for like artificial intelligence or like they provide training data, but they also provide services like hosting data. And so like a whole infrastructure of the larger edtech sector. So, and then you have like in the kind of like second tier, I would say there's all these like kind of you know, things that we know, like Pearson's and like really, really large companies as well, or like, but they all need kind of their help from other companies that, that are more focused on like tech, right? Um, to kind of like bring educational products to the market. So Pearson was a big textbook manufacturer, I believe that was their earlier life. And now they're moving into this like much more datafied space as well, right? Yes, exactly. So that's that's kind of what's been happening. Like this is all kind of stuff about, you know, predictive software or like, you know, like reading that is kind of technologically enhanced while like you can look at the students understanding while they're like engaging with something, but also things like mobile policy units that can detect like problems in schools. And you have this like policy unit that can be detached somewhere. And that's the the broadest or like the most important part of the entire ed tech sector is like 
all these like small companies that provide like one particular solution to one particular problem in education. I think this is like something I talk about in, in my research paper quite a lot. And it's like an example would be Lexplore. This is the company that it, it looks at the reading comprehension of a student with the camera on the on a laptop. So while you're reading, camera follows your eyes. And this camera, uh, there's a particular software. Again, like, you know, we're using like an API from a bigger company, from a different company that is usually, like, I don't know which one this is, but it's usually Google, Amazon, Microsoft. You know, the student is automatically kind of like identified to be, you know, having some, having dyslexia, for example. So, and then, then this is, like I say, like the lowest, but also like the biggest tier. That's fascinating. I mean, you know, you're describing in many ways a dynamic we see elsewhere in the technology and media sphere of big players that become the infrastructure and sell the macro services, as well as doing their own technological development, particularly on the big picture governance and big data analysis side. But then you also have this huge other um, ecosystem of companies who are all competing with one another, but dependent upon those giants. It's very interesting. You were right to um, preempt my question about about your <laughs> EdTech trade show experiences, because uh, that's what I want to get to next. And it's because you have this new paper that's just come out. It's got a great title, Why EdTech is Always Right, Students, Data and Machines in Preemptive Configurations. And I think this, uh, this idea of why the educational technology is, is always right is really kind of fascinating one that, that has resonances outside education too. Before we get to this whole problem of preemption and configurations and, and what this re the relationships between students and data and machines might be, can you talk a little bit about the underlying research? So you went to education trade shows, you interviewed insiders. What was that like and what did you learn? I mean, it's it's super, super interesting. Um, you go there and, you know, it's the, they rent out these huge halls, like in convention, usually like convention centers. And um, you can really see like the millions and millions of dollars that go into this. What I learned was that somehow every company, like all these like small little companies, they're all really, you know, tied up. And, and you said it already is like, you can kind of see this in other places where these really big players become the infrastructures. But that has really become visible to me being on the floor of this like trade show because I did realize there was like these three massive stands that was basically like cities you know Microsoft here Google over there and then like actually just a little bit of AWS which is Amazon because they're really kind of trying to be kind of keep out of this like on the on a more visible level as it as I feel it seems like but um, yeah, you have these like almost like cities there of massive huge vendor stands with facial recognition basketball and really like crazy things and then you have all these like little things scattered around um and then you know when you ask like people you do find out that oh yeah they're using uh, the microsoft application for their um, facial recognition system etc cetera, etc cetera. you know just being there physically and, and seeing at the outside where all these like meeting rooms and obviously i didn't get access to those but that was really interesting to see you know people going in and out um making deals like producing big contracts for schools or universities. Most interestingly has actually been something that is not part of this paper in terms of learning. And, and I think it's gonna be interesting for other researchers to hear about this, is that um, going to these trade shows, I was really just looking at things, right? I was just looking at things. I was like collecting um, pamphlets and you know, kind of like wanted to understand what's, what's really going on here, what's happening, who's selling what and, and how. 
but actually it was really difficult to get ethics approval for this research to like conduct these observation at a trade show with like over 30,000 people present. It, the problem is there's a there's a really big power imbalance between those really big companies and like being a PhD researcher, right? Because what was happening at the time when I was in a discussion with the ethics panel and that, that took quite a few iterations to get through was that I had no means to tell everyone that I'm observing, that I'm doing my research there. While at the same time, you know, you have like these multinational, like billion dollar companies who go there and sell their stuff. They don't have to say anything about how their algorithms work or because it's all a business secret. But me as a researcher, I wasn't really allowed like straight away to look because I couldn't, um, you know, inform everyone that I would be there. And the stuff that was suggested was like, you know, taking out advertisement space and compete with Microsoft for, um, you know, to, to inform participants. I'm like not participants. In the paper, you argue that data-driven preemption has become a mechanism or a means for automated governance of education. So preemption isn't just about predicting the future, you say, but about acting in the present to shape the future. And it's not just about imagining what the future would look like, but about capturing information about the past that can help you to produce that desired future. So can you explain a little bit more about how preemption works in education and what's the role that technology is playing? Because I'm guessing that, I mean, we do preemption ourselves all the time and I'm a teacher, I'm guessing, and you know, you've taught um, a bit too. So, you know, you're, you do your own bits of preemption in the class, but what does that look like when technology is involved? This is the ad tech I'm looking at, right? I'm looking at ad tech that is made to preempt. And that means that we need to have a very large system set up that, you know, collects data continuously about students and what they're doing, right? And in the next step, we have some kind of uh, machine learning algorithm or whatever it is that kind of like detects what leads to what, right? What kind of behavioral patterns, what kind of data patterns come to a you know desirable um, kind of status like for example how do you get good grades what kind of behavior on a platform what kind of like typing patterns on a micro uh, on a keyboard what is it that makes good grades so this is like the, the first level and on the second level is you know also the intervention itself right it's like what can you do to, in order to create this pattern like how can you make the students behave in this way and this is really what like preemption is about it looks at um they look at what's going on with students here and then they try to make prediction about the future or like you know they try to steer their student into a particular future very very common applications for those would be prediction rates for um like dropout predictions like what is it that makes a student drop out and what interventions work how well do these types of technologies account for things outside the classroom or outside the immediate learning environment. So do they control for or attempt to incorporate information about socioeconomic status or, or other factors like that? I mean, they do that pretty bad, right? Um, because they can only work with the data that they have and they only have one very particular operational understanding in, in how things should be working. Like the word context is something that we can completely forget when we talk about prediction. Prediction is about getting as much data as you can. And there's no, nothing really about context. Context is 
the idea of you have every like you have everything that is possible in data and that's enough as you say like you know contexts like uh, socioeconomic status yeah of course that's that's that should be a huge concern rather than behavioral patterns but that's not really the case and that's actually one of the biggest problems with this um, kind of like data driven precision education is that what they create is like they put the blame on failure on the individual's like behavior and behavioral activity right because they don't look at oh well you didn't do this right because you behaved in this way you did all of these things and that's why so it is all like putting the blame on the student rather than actually looking at why so it's kind of like this you know like just another step of like that neoliberalist kind of logic of um you know being responsible for one from their own actions yeah i mean if you if you presume that everybody is uh solely responsible for their own actions in the first place then you're going to end up with these systems that configure things in that way but speaking of of that word configure in your paper you urge a much a kind of wider understanding of what is going on not just in terms of how the technologies work but in terms of the place of the technologies within um, education and you use this um, framework of configurations which is a term from the science and technology scholar um, lucy suchman can you explain what you mean or what suchman means by configuration and what you're hoping to achieve through using that framework for understanding these preemptive technologies configuration for me is just a framework right as a way to undo all of those little relations for example we look at the system of one of the edtech applications that is discussed in the paper and that is this like um automated eye tracking uh, dyslexia diagnosis system um and what we would call this entire thing right with the student in there if i understand this as a configuration and that is you know the student sitting there the student looking at the camera the student reading from the screen in a very particular way and the camera following the eye movements and that algorithm that makes that prediction all of this coming together creates this configuration that in the end you know makes a prediction of well that student needs to be put into a special care group because they're like at risk of developing dyslexia and and for me this configuration framework is a is a concept to undo things because you can untie all of these little things and follow them yeah, you did say already, like, you know, um, Lucy Suchman's work is kind of like, it's a loose take on John Law's ideas around method assemblage, which is also like kind of like a loose take on like um, Bruno Latour's ideas on um, the actor network theory. So this is kind of like this space we're in. And what's the value for you in being able to untie, or I think in the paper you talk about unmaking these elements, what does that enable you to see? For me, like the interesting part about unmaking these things, and this is very much like an idea of media studies very often, is like, you know, making familiar things unfamiliar again. And that's the beauty of unmaking because you just continue to unmake relationships, right? And, and you start to like question them again. And then you see that, you know, the way that they come together is actually, they're not as natural as it might seem. That's for me like a really high value in, in kind of like following just kind of, you know, how these ideas have come to be and, and why does it seem like there's no uh, alternative sometimes. It's a slightly bleak place to arrive at the the idea that it feels like there's no alternative, but I feel like that is often the way we feel about technology today. And so I wanted to ask you, is there a good version of ed tech and can we get there? I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, definitely, as I said in the beginning, you know, I take it such a loose term. So you could be thinking about all sorts of other things like, you know, you bridge distances and you also use edtech sometimes for 
I see this all the time with like my international students who ask me to record the meetings and then they have a transcript and then it automatically translates and they can engage with it in a different way. And that's all really, really interesting and good, right? So I, I do think these good kind of edtech um, applications exist, but they're not preemptive in that way. They're not preemptive that they make a judgment on the student. So that's that's really the, the difference uh, here, I think. Your bit over halfway through your PhD at this stage, if I'm remembering roughly rightly. What's next for you? Are you going to continue pursuing this educational technology post-PhD? Is there more work to be done or are you excited to move in a different direction? Um, it's kind of a good question. Um, I don't think I've even started really to work on this topic, to be honest. Um, so it's really, there's so much to unpack and I think there's so much light that is to be shined on all these like different areas right in especially in education so i do think i definitely want to you know continue to work with media theory and kind of like methodological tools of sts in this like area of education it's really really exciting and i think it's just an interesting niche to to be in well kevin it certainly sounds like we need you out there uh de-familiarizing and demystifying these technologies so thanks so much for joining us this was fascinating and as the parent of younger kids i have to say more than a little terrifying but it's been wonderful to have you with us Thanks. And that's it for this episode of Media Futures Spotlights. For more info about the Media Futures Hub, visit us at mediafutures.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Kara Jensen-McKinnon and to our research assistant, the brilliant Bron Miller. This podcast was made possible by funding from the School of the Arts and Media at UNSW Sydney. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.